got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm Tiffany Clark, your host, and this is episode 167 of this podcast. I've picked out one notable day from history, and I'll tell you what the newspaper headlines and articles were saying about that event when it happened, and then I've got three great additional history stories for you, too. And, of course, I'll throw in a fun, old advertisement at the end. Today's famous date isn't necessarily one that's taught in all of the history classes alongside things like the wars and the founding of our nation, but it's an event that was still a really big deal at the time. Today's date is October 18, 1931, and I'm taking a headline from the Chicago Sunday Tribune. In big, bold words across the top of the page, it says, U.S. Jury Convicts Capone. Yes, friends, today we're talking about the fall of one of the most notorious organized crime bosses of all time. The day Al Capone was finally convicted and sent to prison. Al Capone was born Alphonse Gabriel Capone in 1899. His parents had immigrated to the United States from Italy. It might be a surprise to some to learn that he was actually born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and not Chicago. His family, which consisted of himself, his parents, and seven other siblings, all lived in tenement housing together in New York. I've shared stories about the poor conditions in some of those housing structures in the past on this podcast, so you can kind of get an idea of how Al Capone was raised. His parents did eventually save up enough money, though, to buy a small house in Brooklyn. Al went to school like you're supposed to, but only until the sixth grade. And then his grades started dropping, and he started getting into trouble during class. So, he dropped out. Well, with all that free time on his hands, Al started hanging out in the streets and meeting some less-than-savory characters, like Johnny Torrio. He was about eight years older than Al, but the two became friends, and Al started making deliveries and running errands for him. Eventually, when Al was just 10 years old, Johnny moved to Chicago and started working for a mob leader there, but he still stayed in touch with Al Capone. Then, when Al was in his late teens, he started working as a bouncer and bartender at a place on Coney Island. One day, he made some kind of inappropriate comment to a woman at the bar, and her brother slashed Al across the left side of the face with a knife three times. And that's how Al earned the nickname of Scarface. Anyway, Al had a girlfriend named Mae Coughlin. She got pregnant and gave birth to their son. And then Al and Mae got married just a few months after that. And Al decided that since he had a family, he needed to get a good job, something he could do to support his family. So he packed everyone up and moved to Baltimore to be a bookkeeper, which, in my opinion, is a completely natural career for someone who only has a sixth grade education. <laughs> Whatever. Pretty soon, Johnny Torrio invited Al to move out to Chicago and help him run his gambling and prostitute business there. Al agreed and began working his way up in Torrio's business. Now, by this time, it was 1920, 
and that means that prohibition in the United States was just getting started. Johnny realized that illegal alcohol manufacturing and sales would be a pretty lucrative business. And it was. They started intimidating officials in the government to look the other way, and using violence to enforce what they wanted to happen in some cases. In 1925, someone tried to kill Johnny Torrio, and he decided he'd had enough, and it was time to get out of the business. He turned it all over to his right-hand man, Al Capone. So, at barely age 26, Al became the leader of an operation that some newspapers of the time reported was making $100 million a year. Now, Al had a certain charm about him, I guess you could say, and he was somewhat generous with all of the money he made. Some even compared him to Robin Hood. That is, until things within his organization became more and more violent, and his reputation started to disintegrate. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to episode 45 of this podcast, where I talked about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Anyway, authorities tried and tried for years to find something they could convict Al with. The government even hired an entire team of people, known as the Untouchables, because they wouldn't accept bribes. They couldn't be bribed, it was believed. The Untouchables were hired to do nothing but harass Al Capone and try to find ways to charge him with criminal acts. That group was led by none other than Elliot Ness. The Untouchables started breaking up illegal activities and eventually were able to arrest Al Capone for 22 counts of tax evasion, since he hadn't exactly been paying taxes on all of that illegal money. Al, of course, tried to bribe the jury and figured that he'd get off like he always did. Except that time, the judge switched out the jury at the very last minute. The trial was held, and after eight hours and ten minutes of deliberation, on today's episode date of October 18, 1931, Al was convicted on three of the charges against him and sentenced to 11 years behind bars. At first, he was sent to prison in Atlanta, but then he got moved to Alcatraz. He only ended up serving six and a half years of his sentence before he was pulled out of prison and sent to a mental hospital for three years. He died on January 25, 1947, 76 years ago this week. But his reputation has lived on for all these years. I think that's enough talk about organized crime. Let's open up some more newspapers and find out what else was being reported the day Al Capone went to prison. For my first additional history story of the day, I have a bizarre murder story that's full of a lot of twists and turns. I'm taking this headline from the Albuquerque Journal out of New Mexico. The headline is really long, and it was so strange that I knew immediately I had to learn everything I could about this story. It says, The slick sleuths sailed 6,000 miles after the redhead slayer and brought back a Guatemalan tummy ache. See, I told you it was a strange headline. This story occupied the pages of newspapers for a very long time and made many front-page headlines. The article printed the same day Al Capone was convicted was just the tip of the iceberg. The story actually began two years earlier, in 1929. 
This story is about the murder of Miss Viola Patty, or the murder of Virginia Patty. You see, some newspapers called her Viola, and some called her Virginia. For this story, I'm going to call her Viola because I did a lot of digging, and that's what federal census reports and marriage records called her. Anyway, Viola was born in Iowa around 1896 or 1897, and her father was a merchant there. When she was in her early 20s, she married a man named Arthur J. Wismuth, but for whatever reason, that marriage didn't last, and the couple decided to get divorced. That was in 1925. But before they divorced, Viola gave birth to a daughter, a girl named Helen Dorothy. The little girl was eight years old at the time of her mother's death, and it's not very clear exactly what was wrong with her, but Helen had something wrong with her hip, and I assume it made it hard for the girl to get around. When Viola and Arthur got divorced, Helen stayed to live with her father and her father's parents, and Viola was only allowed to visit her about once a month. It was said that Arthur never remarried, at least at the time of the story, and didn't show any interest in it and preferred to focus his attention on his daughter. The newspapers didn't really give a reason of why Viola only came to visit her daughter once a month, but it did say that at the point Viola was murdered, she hadn't bothered to visit her daughter for six months. Then, out of the blue, Viola set up an appointment to go and visit Helen. Except she never showed up, and she never did get to see her daughter that one last time. Now, Mrs. Wismath, Viola's former mother-in-law, found it a bit odd that she didn't show up to the meeting to see her daughter. After all, she had been very insistent upon coming to visit that day. And when Mrs. Wismath offered to bring Helen to Viola's apartment, Viola insisted that she needed the fresh air and would come to them. Viola had been suffering from tuberculosis-related ailments for years at that point, and had been cooped up indoors for a very long time. And maybe that was the reason she hadn't been to visit her daughter in so long. It's definitely a possibility. Anyway, Viola had an interesting relationship with her former mother-in-law. When she visited, she would often tell the older woman about the men she liked, or men that liked her. She talked about flirting with them. Mrs. Wismath said that she had warned Viola that it was a dangerous game and that men could easily get jealous of each other, but Viola didn't care. This might not seem so bad if it weren't for the fact that Viola had gotten married, again, to a man named Frank Patty. When it came to Mrs. Wismath talking about jealousy, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the fact that Viola had a husband and was still behaving that way. Because of Viola's illness, she spent a lot of time recuperating in Los Angeles and Arizona while her husband worked in Portland. The couple would often sail back and forth on a ship. Well, on one of those trips, Viola was introduced to the radio operator on board. His name was William Tallman, and he was just 22 years old, so a bit younger than the married woman. The pair hit it off and became fast friends. But as you've probably guessed, Things didn't stop with them being just friends, and they soon became lovers. And then Viola suddenly disappeared. It wasn't just the appointment to see her daughter that she missed, but soon other friends and family, and even her lawyer, started reporting missed appointments. 
Apparently, Viola's husband had called and asked her to come up to Portland to see him because he was having some sort of eye problem and he needed her help. She told him she would come, but she never even picked up the tickets that he had sent. When her husband was finally notified that nobody had seen her for a day or two, he was pretty worried, and he immediately headed to Los Angeles to help look for her. A huge search began, but there weren't a lot of clues, and everything was coming up as a dead end. Then, someone found something in Viola's apartment. Two large pictures of William Tallman. Her friends finally admitted that they knew the two were intimate, and that William had been jealous of Patty's husband. And then, somewhere else in town, a landlady was cleaning an apartment for one of her tenants, someone who had rented under the last name of Johnson, someone who hadn't been staying there for very long and was currently out of town when she went to clean the apartment. When she opened the closet door to clean, she got the worst fright imaginable. There, hanging by her dress, in an upright position by two clothes hooks, was the body of a woman. Her head had been bashed in, and it was apparent that she had been severely beaten before she died. She had many wounds on her hands, proving that she had fought to survive. Yes, it was Viola Patty. Since none of Viola's friends could think of anyone by the name of Johnson that Viola was associated with, the police showed the landlady pictures of William Tallman. And sure enough, she identified him as the one who had rented the apartment where Viola's body was found. Luckily for police, they knew exactly where to find William Tallman. Since he worked as a radio operator on a ship, they just had to track down that ship and arrest him. When the captain of Tallman's ship received the word, he approached the operator with the news. William Tallman seemed visibly surprised and shocked by the news. The captain told him that he had to remain locked in his cabin for the rest of the trip, and William Tallman agreed. He insisted that he had nothing to hide and no reason to run. But when the captain wasn't looking and nobody was guarding his room, William Tallman managed to unscrew the lock on his cabin door from the inside and escaped. The question was, did he try to swim for the shore, or did he commit suicide by jumping overboard? Many believed he had grabbed a life preserver and jumped overboard just as the ship was going into San Francisco Bay. Then, a day or two later, they found a life preserver from the Admiral Benson, which was the name of the ship Tallman had jumped from. It was floating near a road on the Oakland side of the bay. The police immediately started digging into William's past, searching for a connection to where he might have gone for help. One of the first people they contacted was a former fiancé. She'd broken off their engagement because of the attention that William had been giving to Viola. The fiancé insisted she hadn't heard from him and had no idea where he would have gone. Police kept digging, and they were able to match fingerprints from the murder scene to Tallman there was very little doubt that he was guilty. Meanwhile, a funeral was held for Viola, and even though the accusations against his wife of having affairs with other men were being printed in every newspaper, Frank Patty was still completely grief-stricken and buried his wife in a fancy, expensive casket and then collapsed from his grief at her funeral. 
And then it came out that Viola had tried to break off the affair with Tallman and had told him that he was too poor for her and that he looked okay in his ship's uniform, but when he was in regular clothes, it was obvious that he was inferior to her. At least, that is what her supposed best friend told the police. The next clue came when a man that looked just like Tallman checked into a hotel in Anaheim, California, under the name of James Skinner. The authorities were notified, but it turns out it really was a man named James Skinner. Next, they followed a tip that he had been seen at a hotel in Washington State, and that he'd left heading north on a motorcycle. The witnesses were all positive that it was Tallman. But again, that clue failed to bring them any closer to finding the killer. Then, a woman who lived in the apartment above the one where Viola was killed insisted that she had been woken up in the middle of the night, the night of the murder, and heard a woman yell, Don't hit me, Earl! The police asked if maybe she heard, Don't hit me, Bill, since Bill is often a nickname for William but she insisted it sounded exactly like Earl. Could it be that they were looking for the wrong man and that William Tallman had fled out of fear of being convicted of something he didn't do? Others who were acquainted with Viola said that she had received multiple phone calls in the days leading up to her murder, and they had scared her and made her fear for her life. But neither the friends nor Viola knew who the caller was. The next clue that popped up in newspapers was one I definitely didn't see coming. It was announced that Viola had been friends with multiple women who were heavily involved in a narcotics ring, and that two of those women were currently on trial for their involvement in the narcotics ring, and they probably knew something about the murder. The police questioned both of those women extensively, but nothing came of it, and the police said that part of the case was closed. Both women were found guilty of their crimes and sent to prison. Pretty soon, people were clamoring for the police chief to be fired. They blamed the escape of William Tallman on him, as well as many other problems in the city. The police chief commented that he was surprised the stock market crash wasn't blamed on him, too. Clues and articles about the murder continued to pop up for many months. In January of 1930, an article on the front page of the Los Angeles Evening Express had this headline. Tallman Patty Murder Solved When Secret Clues Develop. I was really excited to read the article, but it was pretty much just a recap of everything that had been going on in the case up to that point. The article writer seemed to lean toward Viola being more involved in the drug ring than people originally thought, and said that there were reports of strange men, not Tallman, searching for her before she was killed. Was it true that the police were chasing the wrong man? As a quick side note in the timeline, in February of 1930, the Admiral Benson, the ship that Tallman had disappeared from, wrecked as it was coming into the Columbia River at a place known as the Columbia Bar. And if I remember correctly from when I visited the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon, many years ago, that spot is one of the deadliest for ships in the entire world, and thousands of ships have wrecked there. Luckily, everyone aboard the Admiral Benson was able to get off and no lives were lost. Okay, back to the murder story. In August of 1930, 
more than a year after Viola was murdered, another newspaper headline announced that William Tallman had been caught at last. Apparently, a message was sent to Los Angeles police from Grand Rapids, Michigan police. They said that they had the suspect under surveillance and were about to move in and arrest him. Well, considering that I never saw mention of that story in any other newspaper, I'm guessing the person they were so sure was William Tallman wasn't William Tallman. And that brings us to 1931, just a short time before Al Capone was convicted and the two-year-old cold case was suddenly making huge front-page headlines again. Word came that William Tallman had escaped to Guatemala and was working as a radio operator down there. Two policemen and a news reporter quickly took off for the Central American country in hopes of catching him before he could slip out of their grasp again. They took a steamship down the coast, through the Panama Canal, and up to the east coast of the country. Then they took some sort of ground transportation to Puerto Barrios, where Tallman was working. Oh, and they printed all of this information in the newspaper before the men actually arrived. So, yeah, they weren't exactly being secretive. Upon realizing that word was going to get out, the detectives made an official announcement that they were actually heading to Alaska based on a very good tip and that Canadian authorities were joining the search too. They hoped that their little lie would throw Tallman off if he was paying attention to the news. Anyway, when they really got to Puerto Barrios, they went straight to the place where the radio operator, that was a dead ringer for William Tallman, worked. Sure enough, when they saw the man, they knew it had to be him. One of the detectives said, Hello, Bill. When did you leave Oakland? The man turned to them with a look of surprise and told them he wasn't Bill. The detectives questioned him, compared notes, and came to the conclusion that he wasn't lying. This man had brown eyes instead of blue, and he was shorter than the real Tallman. His scars weren't the same as Tallman's either, and most importantly, his fingerprints did not match those of the killer. They had just traveled 6,000 miles to chase down a false lead. But like the headline from the very beginning of this article said, they did end up with severe stomach aches while they were down in Guatemala, so they got something for their trouble. More time passed, and in 1932, it was believed that a man who had shot himself on a Vegas street, a man who had been helping to build the Hoover Dam near Las Vegas, was actually William Tallman. The description matched, the scars matched, but it was a no-go for the fingerprints. Where was the real Tallman? Friends, I was never able to find an answer to that question, and I have barely scratched the surface on clues and places that police searched for him. Articles were printed about the murder for years, but then they eventually stopped, and the case was never mentioned again. But after reading so many articles on it, I'm left to wonder whether or not William Tallman ever made it off the Admiral Benson ship in the first place. At the time, some suggested that he didn't really jump overboard but that he had been hidden away in some sort of secret compartment on the ship and then helped to safety by friends of his on the crew. That's a completely believable theory, 
But remember how a life jacket from the Admiral Benson washed up on shore in the San Francisco Bay? Well, it turns out that the crew of the Admiral Benson said that they had recently gotten rid of a bunch of old or defective life preservers, and the one that the police found a few days after Tallman disappeared wasn't the only one that washed up on shore. There was actually a bunch of them, and it was believed that somehow all of the defective ones had been thrown overboard. Although the theory is barely mentioned in newspapers, if at all, to me, the thing that might make the most sense is that William Tallman jumped overboard in an attempt to kill himself after what he did to Viola, and that's why none of the sightings of him were ever actually him. But that's just my opinion. It's just another case that will probably always remain unsolved. For my second additional history story of the day, I've got a story that was sharing front pages all over the country with the news that Al Capone had finally been convicted. In a few of the newspapers, the story I'm about to tell you got top billing over Al Capone. This headline comes from the Fort Collins Courier Express out of Fort Collins, Colorado. It says, Thomas A. Edison dies, 3.24 o'clock this morning. Yes, the great inventor had died. Thomas Edison was born on February 11, 1847 in Milan, Ohio. He was the youngest child in the family and had six older siblings. When Thomas was young, he contracted scarlet fever, and it left him with major hearing and ear problems throughout his life. As an adult, he was almost completely deaf. Although, apparently, Thomas liked to tell people the hearing loss was the result of a train accident. And I guess there was some truth to that, too. I'll tell you about that in a minute. The family eventually moved to Michigan, and that's where Thomas enrolled in public school for the first and only time. He only lasted 12 weeks before his mother pulled him out and decided to teach him from home since he was so hyperactive and hard to discipline, at least according to his teacher. This actually ended up being a good choice, and Thomas thrived under the teachings of his mother. He learned to self-study and would read and read and read. He was always curious about something. When he was only 12 years old, he started selling newspapers to train passengers, but that wasn't lucrative enough for little Thomas Edison. Oh no, he decided to start writing his own articles, and then publishing his own newspaper. It was the first of many businesses for him, and while working at the train station, Thomas would sometimes go into a little room and perform chemical experiments. One day, he accidentally started the train car on fire, and the conductor came in and hit him on the side of the head. Supposedly, that incident and the scarlet fever were equally to blame for his hearing loss. On another occasion, while working at the railroad, Thomas saved a three-year-old child from being run over by a train. The child's father was so grateful that he offered to teach Thomas, who was 15 at this point, how to use and operate a telegraph machine. That one incident changed his life. He started working as a telegraph operator and traveled throughout the Midwest doing that job during the Civil War. 
It gave him a lot of time to read about technology and study electricity. Eventually, though, Thomas's deafness led to his end as a telegraph operator. As the technology developed and became more advanced, it required the operator to rely on the sounds of the Morse code rather than just the printed code. Thomas couldn't hear it. He had to quit. So he headed to Boston, and there he invented some sort of electronic voting machine that could quickly add up all the votes. He thought it would be really popular. But those involved in politics said they didn't want votes to be easily added up because it would give them less time to change people's minds about who they were voting for. When Thomas was 22 years old, he moved to New York City and invented something that synchronized stock tickers. That time, it was a huge success, and he was paid a lot of money for the invention. He decided to stop trying to find work as a telegraph operator and pursue inventing full-time. His most famous inventions are, of course, a light bulb that could be mass-produced and the phonograph, although in his lifetime, he had more than a thousand patents in his name. As the years progressed, Thomas Edison spent more time managing businesses and companies he created and less time inventing. He even started a film company called Edison Films. And one of their most successful films was the famous 1903 film, The Great Train Robbery. That movie is just 10 minutes long, and it was filmed on only one reel. I'll post a link to it in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group in case it's been a while since you've seen it. Thomas Edison also started dabbling in the auto industry. He was friends with Henry Ford, and he developed a battery for the Model T Ford that was used for decades. When he wasn't inventing, Thomas married and had three children. His first wife passed away, but he soon married again. His life might sound ideal, but not everyone thought that. He was known to be ruthless and he didn't always treat his employees nicely. He spent a lot of time working instead of at home with his family, and some of the methods he used in his experiments weren't exactly ethical, like the time he purposely electrocuted an elephant at Coney Island. Nevertheless, when he died at age 84 from complications of diabetes and other ailments on October 18, 1931, the same day Al Capone was convicted, many cities and homes across the country turned off their lights to honor the great inventor. If you want to know more about the man, you can visit the Thomas Edison National Historical Park in West Orange, New Jersey. Okay, for my last additional history story of the day, I have a unique and fun story for you. I think you'll like it. This story comes from the Salt Lake Tribune out of Salt Lake City, Utah. The headline says, These people get queer jobs. People like to joke around about the government and government jobs where people are paid to do nothing. But this article actually highlights a few of the most unique government jobs that existed in 1931. First up was the job of John Robinson. John was black, and sometimes someone of his race was deported. And when that happened, he was called to accompany them back to their own country. 
He was known as a counselor, friend, guide, sponsor, and caretaker of the people he escorted. At the time the article was being printed, John had just left on a ship headed for South Africa. He was accompanying another black man who had gone insane while living in the United States. Because of his job, John had the opportunity to literally travel all over the world on the government's dime. John had a really good memory and loved to talk about his travels and tell stories about the things that he saw and did all over the globe. The next job featured was the woman who had the privilege, by law, to sign the president's name on documents. I believe it was her only duty, and it was meant to take away some of the mundane tasks from the president. Nowadays, I think a stamp is just used for the president's signature, but back then, she actually wrote it out. The third job featured in the article was that of the attendant whose only job was to carry an ancient mace into the chamber every day. The mace of the United States House of Representatives is supposed to be a symbol of their authority, and it was to be carried by the sergeant of arms, if I'm correct. It looks like an ancient battle weapon. If at any time someone gets a bit out of control in the chamber, the Speaker of the House can order the sergeant at arms to pick up the mace and hold it in front of the guilty party, and that is supposed to make bad behavior stop. That act has happened only six times in all of our country's history. The next job described was that of a messenger for the Senate. His only job was to run personal errands for members of the Senate. In the early days, he rode a horse to do that. In 1931, he rode a motorcycle to get around faster. Another job was that of the coachman or driver who would sit all day waiting just in case the president needed to be taken somewhere. That same coachman was also expected to take the housekeeper of the White House to the market anytime she needed to buy something. And last but not least, the article told of the man whose only job was to make sure the government clocks were all set to the proper time. And if they broke down, he had to fix them. He made daily rounds just to check the clocks, and that was all he did. I think I could actually handle some of those jobs. For today's advertisement, I'm cheating a little and sharing something that's not so much an ad as it is an announcement. It comes from the Press Democrat out of Santa Rosa, California. Remember, our famous date is October 18, 1931, and Halloween was rapidly approaching. A local company had sent a pledge to the newspaper, and any child under the age of 16 who read and signed that pledge could get admitted to a matinee movie on October 24th for free. It was their way of hoping to curb Halloween pranks. It was called the Honor Pledge for Halloween, and it said, I hereby pledge myself to refrain from marking windows or automobiles with soap, wax, or tallow, from destroying, harming, or removing gates, signs, or doing anything that is not good, clean, harmless fun on Halloween. I will also do my part to see that other children do not break the law. Signed, and then there was a blank for the child's signature. I wonder how well the pledge worked that year. 
Friends, thanks for joining me on this journey back in time to October 18th, 1931. I'm not done telling stories yet, so make sure you come back next Monday for an all-new episode where we'll jump forward a couple of decades to the time something famous closed for the last time. It's a place whose opening I covered in another episode. Think it over, see what you come up with, and I'll talk to you later.